What is happening, team? It's your host, Coach Hawk, coming at you live with another episode of Anabolic Radio featuring Alan Aragon, the esteemed gentleman and nutrition overlord and author of this incredible book titled The Flexible Dieting Science-Based Reality-Tested Method for Achieving and Maintaining Your Optimal Physique performance and health with over a decade in the fitness industry he was kind enough to come on anabolic radio for another episode and take us all to school so without further ado alan how are you how's life been and how's life been since the release of your latest book oh bro thank you so much for having me on your show it's really a pleasure to be back on here um life has been good life has been real busy with work it's been a year since I released my book, and I'm really happy with the feedback and the the raves over it. It's, I mean, uh, I did put like 30 years into the book, so <laughs> <laughs> it better get raves. But um, everything's been great, man. Just happy to be busy with work. Mm. And um, since dropping the flexible dieting blueprint, uh, flexible dieting. Um, it's just called flexible dieting. Every time I, I go live or I get questions from people about recommendations for books on nutrition, I always recommend it off the top because it's a great resource. So if you're listening and you haven't bought a copy already, go snag one and um, support Alan. And for the basis of today's episode team, it's going to be based around creating and individualizing okay nutrition protocols that are essential for long-term health outcomes and uh, you know with today's current social technological landscape it could be incredibly difficult for people to understand what they should be doing with their nutrition you have a bull testicle guy telling you to eat raw meat and jimmy johnson on TikTok, you know fear-mongering about aspartame and silly Susan telling you that seed oils will kill you. <laughs> so for some of the audience listening, Alan, how can they begin to strengthen their internal bullshit detector? And after your response, we could dive into different topics about each claim people make about specific foods. Yeah, well, just as a general principle, when somebody is fear mongering against a given food or a given ingredient or heck even a given macronutrient uh, you can pretty much bet that people trying to scare you away from stuff are generally off base in their thinking and in their knowledge uh, and in their approach and sometimes in their general grip on reality so um, that's your first red flag if somebody is ranting and raving and telling you to keep away from this thingy keep away from that thingy this thing will kill you. That thing will give you cancer and seven other diseases. Just know right off the bat, okay, this person's probably a whack job, probably a quack. So that's the first thing you got to know. And the second thing you got to know is that in the nutrition space, uh, people really thrive on um, alarmism and sensationalism. Their, their whole brands can just survive and thrive on on just causing hysteria over issues that are actual non-issues. And 95% of the information in the nutrition realm is really just a bunch of bull crap. Unless you're looking at uh, folks like yourself 
and folks within this little evidence-based niche that we've got. Um, everything outside of that is generally going to be crap. <laughs> so, so you mean to tell me people who go into grocery stores and point out chemicals in food is complete bullshit? Absolutely. Dude, you don't know how many times I get clips from um, people send me stuff from, uh, I don't know his actual name, but Flav City. He, it's it's like, what on earth is going on here? And, and, and then you just look into the credentials of folks, the experience of folks, the knowledge, and, and he's just like a regular lay person who's just like reading off of a tabloid and then delivering it as fact and just scaring people and dumbing down their nutritional IQ into single digits. And it's like, wow, <laughs> this is, this is fascinating. And then you see, he's got like a billion followers. You're like, Ooh, this is not a good thing. Uh, it's like he needs to get educated. He needs to get some help from people who actually know this stuff so we can put out better information because he's got such a big platform. But that's the biggest problem is people who have this level of charisma and this level of passion, they're the ones who get the biggest platforms. And unfortunately, a lot of those people are the ones spreading the most information. So most misinformation. So it's unfortunate. That's that's what the landscape is. But on the bright side, it gives um, it gives you and me things to talk about and things to rectify and things to make right. And that's our glorious struggle in the nutrition and fitness industry. Mm. Mm. Good points. Good points. So when it comes to specific ingredients or shelf stabilizers that are utilized in things like cereals or even like different types of products. Um, is there any reason for people to be fearful over a consumption of a small quantity of, of uh, whatever's in the product? Yes, you know, in, in the vast majority of cases, there's nothing to worry about. These little things, these these ingredients, these preservatives, or these sweeteners, or um, you know the 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 type of thing that that is making the food taste better or more shelf stable. It's like you're missing the forest for the trees. Uh, how does this food fit into the larger context of the diet? Are you only eating this food in the diet, or is it a part of a a range of foods that you're eating? And is the majority of your diet from whole and minimally refined foods? And uh, is it mostly a wholesome diet? Well, if that's the case, then you're worrying about stuff to the point where, you know, you might as well take the position of just never stepping outside of your house because mm -hmm. then you might be breathing the air that's within 500 yards of a freeway. You know what I mean? Mm. So, um, yeah, people miss the forest for the trees and they're missing the big rocks and focusing on the little grains of sand here. Mm. And I think uh, something that's incredibly important that's worth recognizing is if you're probably tuned into this and you're familiar with Alan, and you're familiar with myself, you're likely someone who tries to be aware of what you're doing with your nutrition. But for most of the population, you know, there's a lot of people who tend to be food insecure. So they don't necessarily have the appropriate resources to um, be meticulous with their food selection. And that would prompt them to 
maybe go for some of these cheaper or more, um, you know, processed type foods, which there's nothing necessarily wrong with processed type foods. I always like to tell people the dose makes the poison. So as long as you know, you're making sure you're getting some vegetables in, you know, you're making sure you're getting a sufficient amount of protein in. there's nothing to be incredibly worried about. And um, when it comes to the creation or, um, you know, individualization of a nutrition protocol, you get people who tend to be very tribalistic with different approaches, whether it be keto or carnivore or, um, you know, hunter-gatherer diet, you know, the, the latest and greatest. And I always tell people, as long as calories and macros are equated, it doesn't really matter. And we see that in the literature as well. And when it comes to people trying to create their own nutritional system, what are some tips you have um, for the audience? Well, you bring up individualization and that is the key because there are various programming elements for diet and of course training as well, that the better you individualize it, then the better you set the person up to enjoy the program and actually stick to it for more than a few weeks. You know, they can actually stick to it as a matter of lifestyle. And so the elements that are available for individualizing are m many. Right? We can even begin with, with the macronutrients. So protein is the least negotiable, I guess you could say, of uh, in terms of individualization, but it's still a wide range that um, that benefits a broad range of populations. So on the lower end, you can look at amounts as low as like 1.2 to 1.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight that would serve the general population just fine for the most part. And then when you start looking at training populations and populations sustaining a caloric deficit, populations sustaining a caloric deficit while training, <laughs> um, athletic populations, competitive athletic populations, then you start getting into the sweet spot or the optimal range of protein intake, which is more like 1.6 to 2.2 and occasionally more uh, protein. In terms of grams per kilogram per day. So even that, you know, protein can be individualized. Uh, carbohydrate and fat proportion can be individualized with a low end of as little as, you know, a third of a gram of, uh, of fat per pound of target body weight, all the way up to a full gram per, per pound of target body weight with dietary fat. There's a huge range there. That would suit the needs of a broad range of individuals and goals and preferences. Um, carbohydrate, you know, if, if you're somebody who prefers a low carb or even a very low carb ketogenic model, great, have at it. If you're somebody who prefers a high carb, low fat model, hey, you know, that's your preference, that suits your goals, go for it. So these things can be individualized and should be individualized. And that is the key to having people look forward to their plan. And that is the key for people to be able to sustain their plan for as a, as a matter of, of a lifestyle instead of a matter of a, just a phase. And then there are other 
elements for individualization that that you know you can get into, like for example, um, linear dieting versus non-linear dieting. Um, there's the, the you can talk about the various uh, intermittent fasting models versus the just linear caloric restriction. That that too has to be individualized. Nutrient timing within a day that can be individualized. Um, another way to individualize the diet is to individualize um, accountability methods, accountability tactics, uh, individualize the the tracking approach, um, individualize the level of micromanagement that somebody engages with, with the respect to their dietary approach, uh, individualize the quantitative versus qualitative um, approach. So there's so many ways, bro, to individualize the program including the individualization of tracking progress mm. so yes it is all about individualization yes mm. and i guess uh, it really comes down to selecting an approach that works based off your dietary um, preferences and allows you to adhere to things uh long term so if you are someone who enjoys eating carbs you don't necessarily have to eliminate an entire macronutrient group in order to make progress and um, those are uh, essential essential points to take into account and when it comes to tracking your macros i guess some people will have some pushback to tracking their calories and tracking their macros and if you haven't gotten to that point where you're comfortable enough to track your calories and track your macros consistently for whatever reason it's really as simple as making sure you're getting you know uh at least a palm size or at least six to eight ounces of protein in a given meal and uh, making sure you're spreading your protein distribution throughout the duration of the day, getting some fruits, getting some veg in, and making sure your meal composition is perfectly allocated with enough carbs, fats, and protein. And if you've done that for a certain period of time, eventually you'll get to a point where you want to um, potentiate a bit more progress, and that's where the value of tracking your macros comes into play. And uh, when it comes to specific approaches, you know, you'll have a carnivore camp that says no eating vegetables, only meats and internal organs for micronutrients. What are what are some what are some responses you have for some of those people? God. All right. So the carnivore um, population, they largely fall into a category of individuals who have um, been really kind of uh, consuming a really crappy Western style diet for a number of years or decades and have incurred adverse developments in body composition and or clinical parameters of health. And so they are really seeking an intervention, a, an aggressive um a robust, a drastic intervention to kind of reverse the damage that, that they've done <laughs> with a, you know, with a life of excess. And so carnivore comes in to the rescue and it frankly does a good job <laughs> of reversing everything because um, it increases satiety. It decreases the, to the opportunities to eat um, these foods that people were formerly consuming to gross excess especially the ultra-processed, hyper-palatable, carb-fat combo foods that are just 
highly engineered to be easily overconsumed. Um, all of that stuff's gone with carnivore. So you're finally getting enough protein. Um, finally, your diet is mostly whole foods, right? Even if, if even if it's a bunch of bull testicles, right? It's still whole, <laughs> it's still whole testicle. And so, um, <laughs> um, and so, arguably, that's an improvement upon your previous diet where you were pounding cheeseburgers and, and, and pizza and ice cream and, and drive through to the tune of like one to 2000 calories a day beyond what you really actually required for the maintenance of health. And so when somebody goes on carnivore, they're finally satiated. Um, they're, like I said, they're finally getting enough protein. Um, they spontaneously eat um, less calories in the course of a day, in the course of a week, a lot less because um, the palatability of their diet goes down, the variety of the diet goes down, the opportunities to overeat go down. And um, once that happens, then they're sustaining a net caloric deficit, their body fat goes down. When body fat goes down, you know, even blood lipids improve despite this massive consumption of like saturated fat and cholesterol um, because along with body composition improvements, whichever way you decide to do it, there's going to be a tendency towards improvements in um, blood markers of health as well. And so, uh, it, but of course, it's not optimal. It's not optimal for a number of reasons. So there is essentially a mountain of evidence showing the health benefits of a wide range of plant foods. Uh, and when I say plant foods, I'm not necessarily talking about refined flower foods that are, you can call vegan <laughs> because they don't have animal, animal products in them. But, um, I'm talking about fruits, vegetables, um, legumes, tubers, and even whole grains, even though the whole grain thing is overhyped too. You can get whole, whole grain goldfish, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what the hell? Um, and, and, and so it's just not optimal from a nutrient spectrum standpoint to be limiting your options to just a bunch of uh, flesh and, 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 and balls and, and such, you know what I mean? So, um, there's just a mountain of evidence against the idea of eating that way, but it does represent in a lot of cases, lesser of the two evils. When you compare a carnivore model with a standard gross excess total daily caloric intake that characterizes the Western diet. Mm, great points. And I think, um, Far too often do people use the argument of internal organs to try and meet their micronutrient needs when the reality is you will have some sort of pitfall with regards to whether you're deficient in you know certain micronutrients, which is why it's important to ensure you're getting you know enough fruits and vegetables in so you're getting a spectrum of all those micronutrients and um, that's not to say that even if you do eat enough vegetables and fruit that you won't be deficient in certain vitamins and minerals. And that's where the importance of like a quality multivitamin may potentially come into the picture to provide you with the safety net to get that 
RDA or recommended amount for certain micronutrients. So in terms of um, micronutrients, what are some tips you have for the audience to ensure that they're um, not being deficient, but getting within that threshold of the RDA? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a matter of getting the, the full range of the food groups on most days of the week. And of course, you can skimp out on that and just consume three different foods every day and take a multi, but that's not necessarily going to have uh, the same nutrient spectrum. And I'm not just talking about essential nutrition, but um, non-essential nutrients that contribute to health and over the long term prevent chronic disease, things like fiber. Um, the var the range of phytochemicals that are associated with cancer prevention, um, and uh, you know you're you're simply not going to to optimize nutrition unless you consume the full range of food groups or close to it. And so when I, when I say the food groups, a lot of people think of the classic, you know, basic four food groups from the '70s and stuff, but um, it, technically, there's there are more food groups than that, and each food group has its own strengths in terms of the nutrients that characterize it. So, with the meat and you know, the meat and high protein groups, kind of self-explanatory, and then there's the fat group, fats, oils, nuts, seeds, um, and then fibrous vegetables, or you can call them non-starchy vegetables, and then there's the starch group, which uh, consists of legumes. Uh, grains and tubers, and then the milk and dairy, milk group, um, milk, yogurt, cheese, that that sort of thing. Ice cream, well, not really. You know what <laughs> I mean? It, it, that is kind of a form of dairy, but that's more of like superfood dairy, right? Uh, and then finally, the fruit group. So each one of those six food groups contains foods that you can that you can acquire uh, unique beneficial nutrition from. And so if you're eating foods within those food groups every day for most days of the week, then you are hedging your bets towards achieving a, a complete spectrum of not just macronutrition, but micronutrition. And then, of course, I advocate for uh, taking a multivitamin just regardless. I mean, you're going to go through dieting phases. You're going to go through phases where you're consuming a skimpy or poor range of foods and a, just a very narrow food selection. Um, and of course, you know, people who are sustaining hypocaloric conditions with this narrow range of foods, they're kidding themselves. If you're thinking that you're getting or optimizing the full range of essential micronutrients. So that's in a nutshell, that's, that's the way to do it. Mm. Mm. And so we know that variety is especially important for, you know, making sure you're getting enough micronutrients, macro minerals, phytonutrients. But let's let's switch gears for just a quick second. In the context of something like a competition prep, um, how much will being hmm, uh, diverse with your food selection or having a, a quite a bit of variety take away from overall adherence of things? Right. Whereas if you're overly strict with things, you know, you have a couple yeah. meals you keep in rotation that may potentially reduce 
palatability for a bit, but may maybe increase long-term mm -hmm. adherence. Yeah, great point, dude. Um, a safe route for competition prep is to keep things simple and not go overboard on the uh, diversity and the options. Um, and the, the overarching principle there is that physique competition prep is not about health first. <laughs> it's about looks first. It's about the end result whose goal is extreme in terms of pushing the envelope of leanness while pushing the envelope of muscular development simultaneously. So it's not about health. It's about achieving a very specific and specialized goal that has very little to do with, um, you know, optimizing diet composition. Okay. So now with that said, um, one way to kind of game the system um, where uh, if I may take a couple steps back, the more variety that you consume in your diet of junk foods, of hyper palatable, easily over consumable foods, the more variety there is with those types of foods, the greater the tendency will be to over consume total calories. Um, this principle does not apply to fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, um, interestingly enough. And so you can have a great variety of vegetables and different types of fruits, but it will not result in the passive overconsumption of calories that is common with the sensory specific satiety phenomenon that can occur with more palatable foods, more like higher, like more fat rich, more carb fat rich combo type foods, even savory foods where, okay, I'm done with the main course. I'm full, but that is sensory specific satiety. Cause I still got room for the sweet stuff. Now I still got room for the dessert. And so we can continue on there. And then, yeah, that's more variety of desserts. Oh, that's a different dessert. Let's try that. That sensory specific satiety thresholds don't necessarily apply to fresh fruit and vegetable. So if you wanted to game the system, then keep the variety of your more palatable foods relatively low during prep, but keep the variety of vegetables and fresh fruits high because that'll all dovetail into greater satiety and lower default overall intake. And I actually got that idea from a friend and colleague of mine uh, named Sarah Hartley. So that's that's credit to her. And she um, she wrote a great paper about that that's going to be published in my research review in the upcoming issue. So you know, I wanted to give her credit for that. If you're not already subscribed, go subscribe. And I'm looking forward to seeing that. And um, for sure, for sure. Switching gears a bit back to nutrition for longevity. Um, if you have been tapped into the nutrition or health and fitness space, I'm sure you have seen people fear-mongering over Red Flag, over the WHO's recent announcement to classify aspartame as a, I believe, class 2B or B2 carcinogen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, I think 
oftentimes when people see these announcements, they tend to oh, ha, scream and shout, this is proof as to why you shouldn't be drinking Diet Coke or why you shouldn't be using artificial sweeteners in your coffee or your tea or whatever the case may be. And I don't believe we have any human research with regards to the impact of aspartame. And the research that we have is in rodents with, and if you were to equate the dose to, to the human equivalent, it would be some absurd amount of 20 plus cans of diet soda. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on this fear mongering of this recent announcement of aspartame. Yeah, so in the beginning, uh, the, the IARC, which is the International Agency for Research on Cancer, uh, that is kind of a, that's like a, a, a working group, a, a subsidiary, if you will, of the World Health Organization. So they're basically a, in quotes, an expert panel on the, the cancer side of what the World Health Organization puts out as public health guidelines. The, the World Health Organization um, may be well-intentioned, but they're not always correct in their recommendations. Um, they try to be science-based, but ultimately it's almost like a, an old boys club getting together and trying to make a decision and trying to dictate what, you know, how we should perceive reality. Um, they, uh, once upon a time, this is a few years back, they classified coffee in the 2B category as a possible human carcinogen. If I, if, my memory serves me correctly. That's what they classified it as. Um, they had to retract that classification and take it out of the possible human carcinogen category based on the evidence, which they were wrong about. So kudos to them on making that retraction. But a bigger picture perspective needs to be applied to the aspartame question because they did classify um, aspartame as being in group 2B, which is a possible human carcinogen. And above that, the, the, the group 2, 2A, that would be a probable human carcinogen. But, and, and so it's a lower tier. It's, it's the lowest possible tier of possibly maybe under certain circumstances within animals. So there's no actual human research requirement and no dose specification um, in terms of the scientific evidence that the IARC uses to classify things within the 2B category. So essentially what you're looking at with aspartame is astronomical doses in some animal models showing the possibility of carcinogenicity. Uh, there's no human data showing this. And um, just to add a little bit more perspective here, alcoholic beverages in any dose, doesn't matter, one ounce, two ounce, once a week, once a month, it doesn't matter. The IARC classifies um, alcohol consumption in the highest human carcinogen level. So they... 
they actually classify it in um, in group one. So group one is the highest uh, evidence level of, of, you know, purported evidence level of human carcinogenicity. They've stuck alcoholic beverages in there. So if you believe what the IARC is saying about these infinitesimal doses of aspartame in your, um, you know, your artificially sweetened scoop of protein powder or your, your diet soda, then you have to be consistent and go, oh gosh, well, my six ounces of wine is a class one known human carcinogen according to the IARC. So you have to be, at least be internally consistent. And while you're pooping on folks for having a diet soda on occasion, you better poop on yourself for having two glasses of wine a night because it's in a higher level of human carcinogen per the IARC and you're having more of it. <laughs> so um, there's a bunch of uh, perspective perspectives that need to be considered on this topic. And um, aspartame is one of the most studied substances in, in human history. And it has one of the longest standing safety track records of any ingredient, any food additive, really in human history. I mean, we have like several decades worth of safety data on it um, to the point where the acceptable daily intake of, uh, of aspartame is, um, if I'm getting this statistic right, it's 40 to 50 milligrams per kilogram of body weight per day. And so for a 75 kilogram individual, this would constitute 17 to 21 cans of diet soda per day, which would still be actually a safe amount to consume in theory, uh, if we're just looking at the aspartame aspect of, of the product. If we're looking at other things like caffeine and, and a drink happens to have 200 milligrams of caffeine, well, of course you're screwed if you consume 17 to 21 cans of it, right? So <laughs> there are practical limits to what you could and should consume in terms of diet soda per day. I don't personally see it being a problem for um, the general population to consume, you know, one to two cans of diet soda in the course of a day, uh, along with their whatever their artificially sweetened uh, protein powder plus their artificially sweetened yogurt or whatever it is. And by the end of the day, you're still hitting only a fraction of what's considered the acceptable daily limit of aspartame intake. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what is, there are much bigger threats in the diet and in the lifestyle as a whole than aspartame. You're, you're looking at a very minuscule potential factor compared to other much bigger factors. I mean, I would put added sugar as being a much bigger threat uh, to the health of the general population than artificially sweetened sodas. Mm. Great point. Zero calories. <laughs> Made me want to die. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great point. So is there, is there, or are you familiar with any data in terms of, um, artificial sweeteners negatively impacting the, the microbiome or GI? Yes, there is a body of evidence showing that one particular artificial sweetener is capable of altering the gut microbiota to the degree that it adversely impacts 
blood glucose control. Okay. Um, however, a couple things, a couple caveats. Number one, it is an artificial sweetener that's virtually commercially extinct. So we're talking about saccharin. <laughs> so it's very difficult to get saccharin unless you specifically choose the pink, little pink packet in your local diner, um, your local greasy spoon uh, diner like Denny's or IHOP. You specifically choose the pink packet, the sweet and low. Um, you're just not going to be getting, you're not, you're not going to be finding uh, saccharin. In, in, in most commercial products have phased saccharin uh, out of their formulations. Mm. And so it is saccharin that is kind of a potentially a adverse agent for, you know, microbiome and glucose control. Uh, the adverse effects have been seen in rodents, of course. Um, they replicated uh, this effect in humans when you dished out a serving of about set the equivalent of about seven seven cans of uh tab or 10 packets of sweet and low the little pink packet um over a pretty short period i think they were able to see adverse effects over a week with saccharin and there's um other adverse findings from saccharin in terms of uh, body weight regulation as well so it's not as if artificial sweeteners are unequivocally and universally a good thing, especially given the negative effects that have been seen with, with saccharin. But this is just not the case with aspartame. It's just not the case with sucralose. And it's just not the case with stevia either. <laughs> so, mm. um, and even ACE-K, there is a paper looking at over 800 exposures um, across the human and animal literature and finding no reason to be concerned. And so uh, the artificial sweetener scare is one of those things that is blown way out of proportion. And um, it's one of those things that is a truly sensationalized scaremongering thing. Mm. Talking about sensationalized and blood glucose control, and we, we previously touched on how, you know, it doesn't really matter so long as calories are, and macros are equated in terms of your approach. Nothing uh, seems to impact fat loss to a great degree. However, you'll get some people on the internet or on TikTok or Instagram that tell you the reason why you can't lose body fat is because you're consuming carbs and it's causing an insulin spike and you need to go get this product to better manage it. And it's something like a GDA, which really they're just trying to increase their profits. So what are some thoughts uh, or um, feedback you'll have for the audience who tend to think that they can't lose weight because they're causing an insulin spike and they're not being able to utilize that glucose? Yeah, it's a complete mass neurosis and mass hysteria to think that postprandial glucose response or postprandial glycemia is going to have a meaningful impact on body composition over time if you have if your overall diet is sound and your overall energy balance is on point so um 
the reason that we can confidently say that this is a non-concern and a very silly, very silly thing to be worried about is because there have been two, possibly three dozen studies comparing diets with different glycemic effects, different uh, insulinogenic effects. But when you equate calories, when you compare two diets of the same total calories, and you know you take it a step further, you properly control the experiment by equating protein intakes as well, it doesn't matter which diet is more glycemic than the other. You'll still lose the same amount of body fat but at the end of the rainbow, you still maintain the same type of body composition by the end of the experiment. As long as calories are matched and protein or protein is matched, one diet can have 5% carbohydrate and the other diet can have 45% carbohydrate, 50, 55% carbohydrate and a low percentage of uh, dietary fat. As long as protein is equated and as long as calories are the same, one diet will, of course, be giving you bigger insulin spikes and bigger glycemic spikes uh, after each meal, but they'll both result in the same dang fat loss mm. by the end of the experiment. And, and of course, that's an interesting thing, but it's a highly inconvenient finding for people who are fixated on this silly little idea that postprandial glycemia is kind of the key. To the thing that you need to worry about and control. Mm. Mm. Great points. Yeah, they're just trying to <laughs> grab money from these people selling snake oil. And um, speaking of grabbing money from people, we all know that you've been paid out by big seed oil and yeah. you tend to get a lot of attacks online from people stating that <laughs> You don't know what you're talking about. So <laughs> when it comes to the confusion of seed oil and the impact yeah. it has on overall and general health, why don't we go ahead and give the audience some insight there? Yeah, sure. Um, it's easy to scapegoat a single nutritional or dietary element um, and, and blame it for the ills of humanity. You know, that's how our ape slash lizard brains work we want to simplify what nature really is and we want to be able to say this single thing in the diet all you need to do is avoid it and then your life will be much better and you'll avoid disease and you'll avoid heartache and pain you might even avoid death <laughs> but and and the seed all thing is no different uh, seed oil is what the sugar scaremongering was in the nineties and two thousands, you know, um, seed oil is what dietary fat in general was as far as being the nutritional scapegoat, uh, back in the 1980s. So now we're, we're scaremongering seed oil, just like people were scaremongering, um, sugar like in any amount, right? And, and so uh, seed oil is the new carbs. Well, that's really kind of hilarious because the only time you're going to be getting seed oil that would be detrimental to health is if you're consuming foods in usually in commercial establishment, restaurant, fast food type 
um, of establishments where the quality is poor, they're frying and refrying and reusing the oil to serve you um, basically junk food. And so if you're eating that kind of a diet, <laughs> if your diet is predominated by fast foods and fried foods and reused oils, you have bigger problems than just the fact that it's seed oil. <laughs> um, and so, and, and not only that, but when you compare um, seed oil used for cooking with butter and lard used for cooking, guess which type of oil is going to show more favorable health outcomes in the peer-reviewed literature. It's the seed oils that are going to show more favorable outcomes on intermediate markers of health like blood lipids. It's the seed oils, you know, compared to the, the, the land animal fats, butter and lard, for example. It's the seed oils that are going to show more favorable outlooks and outcomes in terms of the the hard endpoints like cardiovascular disease mortality and so it's really the seed oils that are beating out butter and lard in the clinical literature and so the evidence of of you know seed oils being a bad thing is actually outweighed by the evidence of things like butter and lard being a bad thing so are we, should we scaremonger about butter and lard? No, of course not. I mean, how, how many people are just eating just a hell of a ton of butter and a ton of lard? Uh, you know, like what populations are, are we looking at here? You may, you may have bigger problems in your life if that's how, you, how you're living. Um, and, and the evidence that people use to fearmonger seed oils is, like I said, it's always outweighed by the larger body of evidence against high saturated fat type type and people can deny it all they want but then you have to ask them what is your standard of evidence for your nutritional beliefs is it like clips from you know a doctor here and there or is it the actual evidence basis within the peer-reviewed literature what is it what, what do you base your beliefs on dude you know, um, and then you and then you look at the literature on the various seed oils, sesame oil, canola oil, on down the line. You know, look at all the damn seeds you want: pumpkin seed, black seed, chia seeds. You see all this positive stuff, <laughs> and um, people are just insane. And frankly, a lot of them are are, are just biased and, and agenda ridden. When they're, when they're trying to push that false narrative of seed oils being a uniquely bad thing. It's mm. just fat. It's just fat. I mean, how much of your diet are you going to flood with any given fat? Uh, it's like, bro, get a hold of yourself, you know? We're talking to you, all the people who get your information from Joe Rogan podcasts. <laughs> 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 and, and even though, you know, People may fearmonger seed oils. If your diet is majority of fast food, processed foods, the Western diet, you struggle with adherence, you struggle with structure within your day, you have 
bigger things to worry about rather than specific ingredients that are utilized in foods. And uh, switching gears a bit, you know, people tend to be worried about some of these things within their nutrition, but come the weekend, they're, they're you know, binge drinking out of their minds. And even, you know, I have some clients who, you know, they go out on the weekend and one drink turns into four or five drinks and then they wonder why their average isn't dropping. And well, it's like, you know, you gotta take a, you gotta address the elephant in the room. So when it comes to alcohol consumption um, and its impact on overall health, obviously we know that the dose makes the poison, but um, you know, from some of the literature that I've read, um, you know, I've seen reduced rates of fat oxidation, you know, our body stops partitioning other nutrients and doesn't completely stop, but it reduces partitioning of other, other nutrients until, you know, alcohol is out of the system. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and I'm sure the audience would about uh, alcohol's impact on long-term health. Yeah, the alcohol question is a big one because there is the potential for addiction and, and substance abuse weaved in to that question. And so um, with something like alcohol, the majority of the general population will be able to stay healthy on as much as an average of one to two drinks a day. So <clears throat> that is considered in quotes, healthy moderation, at, statistically anyway, at the general population level with smaller folks being able to get away with a drink a day and larger folks being able to get away with a couple drinks a day on average. And you can live a ripe, long, healthy life. Um, and in fact, there's some literature showing a, an enhancement of, of health from uh, wine consumption at the, at the rate of one to two drinks a day. Um, of course, that's counterbalanced with stuff that doesn't show any particular benefit. But uh, the bottom line is it's not necessarily a bad thing. Now, for the minority of the population who can't have one to two drinks a day and that ex escalates to one to two bottles a day, well, then they're kind of screwed if they read the literature and went, oh, this is fine. I'll, I'll try this. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, that's the treachery there is just the potential for addiction in a small percentage of, of the population. Now, um, I have to also say that at the general population level, one of the biggest contributing factors to the obesity epidemic and one of the most underappreciated and overlooked factors in the obesity pandemic worldwide uh, and also a contributor to diabetes because of the accumulation of body fat from the excess calories from alcohol is, is people's drinking habits. A lot of people who drink even recreationally can take down two to 3,000 calories of, uh, of, of alcoholic beverage in, in a single weekend day. You know, if you do that on Friday and Saturday nights, then you got an extra 6,000 calories worth of, uh, worth of drinking that you're adding to the week. Um, and that can, that can sustain a significant caloric surplus over time. Um, and it's not necessarily the good kind of caloric surplus that gets partitioned straight into the fibras, you know? So, um, yeah, 
that's a good thing to bring up because a lot of people miss that. Mm. Great points, great points. And um, in short, don't go binge drink on the weekend because you're going to blow out your deficit out of the water when you could actually be consuming that through actual food. Um, But the dose makes the poison, you know, just be aware of your alcohol consumption. And obviously, don't drink and drive. And um, when it comes to uh, the importance of balance within a nutritional protocol, you know, for, for most of my clients, I don't create any sort of restrictions. I generally tell them 80-20 rule, you know, have those fun foods in terms of long-term adherence. But um, when it comes to things like restriction, obviously some people are, you know, going to restrict themselves from consuming certain foods. And um, this leads them into developing some sort of thought suppression for that food. And they have an increased thought frequency and desire for wanting to consume what they're in fact not trying to think about. So Mm. in terms of incorporating some sort of balance and better structure with some quote unquote trigger foods, what are some tips you have for the audience? Yes, um, that is a great question and a great topic. Before I, I hit that, and I'm making a, a note for myself so I don't forget what you asked. I wanted to mention that alcohol consumption can hinder goals in, in at least a couple other ways other than the potential for addiction and the extra, the superfluous calories that people consume is that it will affect, it will tend to affect training, uh, training performance, especially next day. And it will also have a tendency to degrade sleep quality. So when you degrade sleep quality and quantity and you degrade training capacity, those two things can serve as significant uh, hindrances to to the pursuit of people's physical goals. Um, And of course, you know, there's other things with alcohol that get people in a a whole lot of trouble <laughs> that that are pretty obvious. You know, self awareness kind of couldn't go down to zero. Situational awareness goes down to zero, and uh, people just uh, have to be careful with it. it. People who don't have enough respect for the destructive potential of alcohol will find themselves in a world of hurt. In in many ways, many possible ways. So, okay. So the, the question you asked about foods that trigger binges, um, how do people manage kind of the idea of allowing the consumption of these foods without going off the rails and without going overboard and it, it triggering the, the consumption of like three, four, 5,000 calories of it in a single sitting. Um, it begins with changing your perspective of the food. So when I say that, I mean a healthy perception of, let's say, potato chips is, well, these are just, you know, deep fried potatoes that are crunchy and and savory and potentially yummy for uh, the munchies. Um, that's what it is. It, it's it's a food and it's it's calorically dense. It's and it, and it's highly palatable. It's easy to overeat. Okay, that would be a healthy perception of a bag of potato chips. An unhealthy perception of a bag of potato chips, which would lead to binging on it, would be this. 
Ah, uh, that's a bag of potato chips. Boy, do I love it, but I know I can never have any of it. Not even one, not even two. I just can never have it. Because if I do, I'll have to eat the whole bag because I know that I'll try to never have it ever again for at least a year or at least six months. So that would be an unhealthy perception of, of um, a food that could be a trigger food. The same type of uh, scenario would apply to desserts, you know, to a bag of cookies, to some cake, or to some ice cream, or even to savory stuff like pizza. Um, thinking, ooh, pizza, that's a bad food. That's an evil food. I, I'm a very naughty and evil person when I eat pizza, so I shall never have it. Versus saying, all right, pizza is a hyperpalatable palatable food. It's very yummy, um, potentially easy to overeat, especially you have the munchies after a night of drinking or whatever. Um, I like pizza. I'll have one, two, possibly, possibly three slices if I, if I kind of plan for it, you know, if I, uh, made the necessary adjustments in the day to fit in those calories. Now that's a healthy way to look at, at, these types of foods. So if you can remove yourself and recondition your mind from viewing any food as forbidden fruit or not allowed or something I can never have, then that is the root of what would remove the binging behavior. So in a nutshell, change the way you view the food and when if somebody were to insist that I've got trigger foods, this is a trigger food, that's a trigger food, no matter what, you know, no matter how, how, you know, much I try to moderate these things, if I, if they get in front of me, I'm going to mow through it. I'm going to mow, mow through the whole bag. So, okay. You can either choose to maintain that perception or you can choose to take the approach of mm, maybe I need to recondition my perception of these foods. And when I am finally able to remove the taboo mystique or the forbidden fruit mystique from these foods, I can give the power to myself instead of giving all the power to the foods. Mm. And that is a, a much more uh, deep-seated and potentially permanent and practical way of mitigating the binge response rather than just any which way but loose, trying to keep the foods out of the house, trying to avoid the foods, trying to stay in a different room from the foods um, and, that, <laughs> and that sort of thing. And, um, and there is another, there's sort of a sub-conversation there about the literature looking at what happens when you um, try to moderate foods versus avoid them. And, and indeed, when certain foods are avoided, then you start losing the craving for them. And that's, that's true. But these studies only last a matter of weeks, months at most. And the literature on weight regain almost always involves these foods that you tried to avoid completely. And so there's a bigger problem there to look at, and there's potentially a better solution there 
then simply avoid, 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 keep it out of the house, stay in a different room from, but while still looking at these foods as forbidden fruits and definite triggers. Mm. Great points, great points. I think it's uh, always going to come down to a game of perception. And then it's it's also a game of time and retraining yourself in terms of how you think about foods. And um, mm -hmm. just to reiterate, there's no good foods or bad foods, but, you know, foods that have more or less nutritional value, foods that are, you know, more palatable than others, and uh, really taking yourself out of the lens of viewing things from a black and white perspective will pay big dividends when it comes to making sure you're not in that binge restriction cycle or you're not yo-yo dieting for eternity. And um, to round off this conversation, Alan, I first want to thank you for your time. But um, before I let you go, how do you think we can collectively make an effort um, to make people more food aware about making smarter decisions? Well, I, I think that one of the big steps people can make is just adopting the the perception, the accurate perception that a healthy diet can still contain a minority of, in quotes, unhealthy foods. So if 80 to 90 percent of your diet would would please your, you know, your local clean eating guru guy, and then 10 to 20 percent of it is you know, whatever, honestly, whatever you want, you're still consuming a diet that's 80 to 90% wholesome and healthy and um, mostly whole, minimally refined. And you still have that 10, 20% uh, leeway for indulgence, fun foods, rebellious foods, you know, sanity. Um, and so <laughs> it's, and there's literature actually supporting the idea that um, when you don't view foods as dichotomous entities, like this food is angelic, this food is evil, <laughs> this food is to be consumed ad nauseum, this food is to be avoided. When you when you have a more balanced view of things, not only do you have uh, better regulation of body weight, but you have better control over mitigating the potential for developing an eating disorder. And um, I guess that's, you know, that's kind of the bigger picture of how I would want people to perceive the diet in terms of what's healthy. Mm. Mm. Go have some angelic ice cream, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, I just had some of that just recently. It's pretty damn good. Oh, man, I got to go bust open the, the salt and vinegar chips in my pantry right now. But um, <laughs> to really work out. Yeah, pre workout. Oh, today's a rest day, thankfully. Um, but I got to go get that cardio in, huh? Okay. But, uh, do what you got to do, man. To, to close off this episode, team, go get you a copy of Flexible Dieting by Alan Aragon. Go subscribe to his research review if you are a fit pro or you just want to learn more about these topics. He does a really great job diving into them. And, Alan, I want to thank you for coming on again and talking to us and taking us to school. It's always a pleasure to, uh, you know, chat with you. You're super down to earth and you break everything down really easy for people to digest. Isak, thank you so much for the convo, man. I love what you're doing for the industry. I love how you're able to communicate and, and just reach out to the audience and just improve lives. So I really appreciate that, man. 
Thanks so much for your time. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, team, don't forget to take a screenshot and hit us with it on your stories. And Alan, we'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Take care, buddy.